Welcome 90% Mental. I'm your host, Grant Parr, and thank you for joining us for our 30th episode. You know, I'm so excited for this show. I'm so excited to talk about baseball. And with baseball opening up this week, I think it's very timely when I have my guest on today, and his name is Bob Tewksbury, who is the San Francisco Giants mental performance coach, but he's also a former Major League All-Star pitcher who played in the Major Leagues for 19 years and 13 of them in the big leagues. So, Today we're going to talk about his book, 90% Mental, which was released a few weeks ago. And Bob and I had a a quick little laugh because we're talking about his book, 90% Mental, on my show, 90% Mental. But we're going to talk a little bit about why he wrote the book and how he wrote the book. But for the most part, he just wanted to share with you what it's like to be on the mound. And he shares these intimate stories where he's pitching against Barry Bonds, Ryan Sandberg, Mark McGuire, William McGee. The beauty of this book and the way it's written, it brings you into that experience. And the way he writes his book, he shares with you what's going on in his mind. He weaves in mental skills training. He also educates you on what it's like to not only be a pitcher, but also how to deal with the mental game. And I can't stress to anybody listening to this, if you love baseball and you love the mental game, you have to pick up this book. From the beginning to the end, it's a page turner, and you're going to be highly entertained and engaged. I can't wait to share this interview with you. Bob is so down to earth and so authentic. It was an honor to have him on my show. So let's go talk to Bob. Hey, Bob, how are you? Good, Grant. It's uh, it's great to have uh, to be on your show and uh, talk a little bit about the book, baseball, and beyond. Man, I'm excited. I, you know, having you on my show and and just uh, having this opportunity to get inside your mind about. You know, writing this book, 90% Mental, but also going into your career as a Major League Baseball player and also um, being a mental performance coach for the San Francisco Giants. I just can't wait to, to learn more about your background and your journey. Yeah, I, I, like you said, I appreciate, you know, the book's 90% Mental. How could I not go on a podcast that was a similar name and right? talk about this stuff, right? Exactly. <laughs> well, before we get into your background and, and the book and, and all your cool stories within the book... I always ask every guest on my show, just kind of set the tone of my of my show of what does mentally tough mean to you? Yeah, uh, that's a. Uh, hmm. I, I think mentally tough means, res- in a word, resilience to be able to to battle through adversity and still, uh, you know, come out on top. You know, and as if it may, and it's not short short term. It could be a long term battle. Yeah, mental toughness, I think, isn't short. I think it's, I think it's long. I think it's continuous. Big time. Yeah. Now, was there a moment? And I'm sure there was a lot of them. But was there a moment when you were playing that you could probably just describe like a mentally tough moment that you dealt with? Yeah, and it it really didn't turn out well. It was uh, the '92 All Star game. The first inning I pitched, uh, I got three Hall of Famers out in 10 pitches, and then I, I thought I was out of the game. And um, so I had kind of shut down mentally, and Bobby Cox asked me how I felt, and I said, great, you know, I'm about ready to go have a beer and celebrate this thing. And he goes, you got to go pitch again. And I was like, what? Uh, and I so long story short is I, I had two outs and two guys on with no runs in, and I gave up five runs in that inning and get taken out of the All-Star game. So I think looking back at that, there was a moment in time during that inning that I probably had done, could have switched something mentally. Um, could have been a little bit more tough with 
focus, but I and but in essence, I think I was feeling sorry for myself because I was back out there and I was getting embarrassed and. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's always there's all kinds of little moments like that, but that's one that comes to mind real quickly. Yeah, and I remember when you were you know outlining that that story within your book, and it seemed like as soon as you got done, there was a lot of talk going on in your head. And oh yeah, and yeah. and it, just coming off of that, you'd feel like there'd be a lot of positive talk, but you were like, "I'm done here. I'm get me out of here." That's I'm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I felt. You know, and that's one of the things, you know, that's mental toughness is not shutting down until you shut down. And I mean, it's my fault. I should have been prepared. I can't assume that I'm not, you know, going to go back out there. But in my mind, it just, it talks about mindset, you know, and just you're on or you're off. And if you're off, it's really hard to ramp back up again. So being mentally tough means being on and even through the bad times being on. And that's, it's difficult. Big time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, there's going to be a lot more stories that we're going to be talking about, and I can't wait to get to. But as far as your book, what was the motivation in writing this book? It was twofold, actually, Grant, um, or threefold or maybe tenfold. Um, You know, when I got done playing, I, I, I really wanted to work on a book that was written by a player about mental skills to tell my story about what it was like. And and then it, I tried to kick it off. It didn't work. I tried a second time. It didn't work. We couldn't find the theme or the concept that would be, you know, uh, sellable, so to speak. So I kind of gave up on it. Um, and then I started thinking about a conversation I had with, um, well, let me, let me go back. So I kind of gave up on it, but I had made contact with a, pe- a couple of people that were in the industry and out of the blue, the, the agent called me and said, hey, I want to kick this back off again, but I have a new direction that I want to talk about the book with you. So it went from being like a self-help mental skills book to more of a baseball narrative mm. around inside the game. But to go back to the story, in 2006, 2007, I was in the minor league clubhouse talking to players, and it was really one of those things that happened that, accidental brilliance maybe mm-hmm. but I asked the players I go how many you know there's 25 guys in this locker room there's you know clay from the field dirt trash cans you know peanut butter and jelly it's just <laughs> equipment all over the place a locker room that's way too small yeah. 25 guys that are all wanting to get to the big leagues uh, so I asked them I said how many people here are playing up to their potential no one raised their hand wow. and I said okay so under the three aspects of performance, physical, fundamental, and mental, with a show of hands, which one of, the, which one of those areas is the reason why you're not playing up to your potential? And one of the guys, so I said physical, and one guy raised his hand, and he had an injury. I said fundamental, you know, mechanics, swing, one guy raised his hand. And I said, oh, how about mental? And they all raised their hand. Wow. And I looked at him and I said, what are you doing about it? And they all looked at me and their mouth dropped. And I've asked that question to players at all levels and it's always the same answer. So the mental part of the game is the big part of the game. And so through the book with the great writing of Scott Miller, we created a, a narrative that takes people inside the game that talks about the mental part 
and and some great players that are using it and how they use it to perform today. Well, you know, I'm, we talked about this before the podcast, but you do this. It's it's very brilliant how you wrote this book and how you you get very detailed. You bring in the reader into your your story, but then you also you weave in these mental performance, you know, uh, strategies, techniques. So you kind of, you feel what, exactly what you were feeling in that moment, mm-hmm. but you also, you bring in some education on the mental game. Yeah. And I, and for me, being a mental performance coach, I'm all, this is, I love this. <laughs> I really connected and resonated with me. Yeah. So I really loved how that, the approach of the book. Well, thank you. That's what, you know, that's why Scott Miller, he writes at Bleacher Report. He's won some uh, awards, uh, should follow him on, He's done some great stories on Jake Peavy. He's, I think he's doing one on Tony Clark, the, the head of the Players Association, coming up. But that's what I, I wanted to do, and he was able to, um, to do that. I didn't want it to be a, a memoir or a baseball biography because I just, you know, I think there's a lot of those books out there, and they're all great and people have interest in them. But I wanted to take something more than that. Like, what does it really feel like to be on the mound you know, what are these guys going through? And, and I was able to, to do that pitch to pitch the, the information <clears throat> that you read are all from my journals. Mm. Uh, I kept, I kept, uh, very, uh, detailed journals when I pitched. Um, I had the video of, of the near perfect game. So I recall going through pitch by pitch. I had the video of the all-star game, unfortunately, <laughs> that I, I hadn't looked at in years and I had to revisit that second inning. But so um, journaling is a very big part of performance and I think it helped put together some of those stories in the book. Absolutely. And when I work with athletes, that's one of the things I have them do. Mm-hmm. Um, but considering these stories that you talk about, they're so detailed, mm. um, pitch by pitch, inning by inning, player by player. If you didn't journal throughout your career, would it be really hard to, to write this book? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And I mean, I'm sure that you tell, you know, your clients and, and the athletes that you work with, you know, the purpose of journaling is there's there's so many. Uh, one of them is to write down what you didn't do well so you can learn from it the next time. Right. Another is to write it down so you don't think about it and ruminate it about all night. Another is to remember you know, your, what you felt and how your body felt doing a particular task because you go, oh yeah, I felt good. Well, write it down. What did you do? Because I guarantee you, your body's, you're going to fall out of that sweet spot right? and you're going to have to find your way back again. And if you write it down, you might be able to recall what that felt like or something that can reconnect you. So journaling is so important. Big time. You can also see trends too. Yeah, yeah, from yeah. game to game. Yeah, it, well, trends, and, and from that, to expand on that, when I work with pitchers that are truly vested in getting better, we talk after every start, and I want them to tell me what their thoughts are because there's always the, the narrative that the public hears, mm-hmm. and then there's the internal narrative. Right. And the public, you know, I had a pitcher that you know gave up a two-run home run at Fenway Park, and he told the media, you know, I just didn't get it in enough inside pitch to a right-hander and uh i knew him well enough to say i think you're full of bs (laughs) what were you really thinking right and he was thinking i hope i don't give up a home run right and he gave up a home run 
And because what he was thinking, you know, his mind, the sign, the signal from the catcher was fastball in, but he was afraid to get it in for whatever reason because he was going to give up a home run. So he threw a ball right down the middle. And so that, so if he discloses that internal narrative and said, I was afraid of this, then we can get into self-talk on the mound. We can get into changing the thought at the time. And so that continuous dialogue helps change that internal process as they pitch each game going through the season. Big time. Big time. Well, you talked about Scott Miller teaming up with him on this book. How did you team up with him? How did well, how did Scott become the guy to, yeah. to co-author um, this? Luckily, you know, I, I think... Uh, so the agent is Rob Kirkpatrick, and he, uh, he's been in New York publishing for a long time. He was an editor at a publishing house, and now he's kind of his own thing. And we wanted the right guy. And I, you know, there's a lot of great writers in the Boston area of sports writers, many of whom I know. A couple were busy. Um, and then Scott, Scott followed me when I was with the Twins. He was beat writer for Minnesota, so I knew him a little bit. And... Uh, we were down at spring training in the January of 2016 or 17 and said, hey, I got this project, you know, over dinner. We talked about what it would mean, the time requirements, his vision. And he had never done a book before. And he goes, you know, I, I don't know, you know, I have so many deadlines with, with Bleacher Report and I'm following this and I'm doing stuff for the Padres. And um, he goes, but you know what? let's give it a try <laughs> and and so we collaborated together he was incredible uh reaching some hard deadlines that had a lot of requirements for writing in and amongst his his own work um, he did a great job great great job and was able to weave it in i've had so many comments like you said earlier grant about people how how he kind of weaved in the narrative you know right. i i gave him the information he did the weaving yeah, <laughs> yeah right <laughs> well he did a great job and and i can't wait for my listeners to uh pick up your book because uh you know whether if you're um, you know into the mental game or into baseball period it's 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 just a a great book and yeah, it's a page you. turner so yeah, it's, it's great thank you so when you think about this book and writing it the whole process what did you love about writing about it, and what was challenging about mm. writing this book? Um, I love to be able to share some baseball stories that are in the book. You know, uh, how which I didn't know until Scott. Uh, you know, Scott helped unearth a few more. You know, there's a story about how Ted Simmons helped me. You know, told me flat blank, if you pitch well on this game, you're going to stay in the big leagues, and if you don't, you're going to get sent down. And Scott interviewed him, and you know he talks about picking up. You know, Ted Simmons was uh, got picked up hitchhiking by Bob Seeger, you <laughs> right. know, and so it's like wow. And then um, you know the stories of Joe Torre. You know uh, when I took myself out of a game, basically when Joe came to the mound in Philadelphia, I thought he was taking me out, but he was checking to see how I was and. I took myself out because of my internal dialogue. Right. And that conversation that followed that, uh, Joe kind of gave me permission to be successful. And just that was able to tell that story. I think people see Joe Torrey as a Hall of Fame manager and great, you know, he's a great player and had the great teams in New York, but he's, he's more than that. And to be able to show that other side of Joe. So 
through the book. So there's lots of things that were that I like sharing. Um, what was difficult was really trying to share some of my intimate feelings, you know, to really put that out there, to not have the the uh, the narrative be the media narrative, right? But to give you the real narrative, and um, you know, I shared some things in my journal that um, you know that uh, no one knew, you know, about mm. comments from the game. Uh, so so that was hard. Got it. Well, I always say, you know, putting anything on record, whether if it's podcast, book, whatever. Um, there's some vulnerability to it, you know, and I always say, you know, victory goes to the vulnerable, you know, um, and I know it's tough and it gets scary sometimes, but when you put yourself out there, like some magical things happen. And I can only imagine just knowing baseball culture, there's football culture, basketball culture. I can only imagine with the years that you played, there's probably some stories you probably couldn't tell. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, and I think back to your point, victory goes to the vulnerable. I I can tell we've talked a couple of times, but you're a very sincere, caring guy. And I think, uh, I hope the listeners appreciate that because uh, I can see how you would connect with athletes and really have a genuine sense of caring. And I think that's what, you know, people like. They don't, they, like you said, they'd rather someone be vulnerable and expression of honesty or candor than play the tough guy, yeah. you know, because you can connect. So, um, yeah, some of the stories, you know, there was, uh, well, some of the fun stories that didn't make the book were the time my catcher, Terry Steinbach, went into the visiting locker room and nail gunned a catch, a coach on the other team's equipment to the locker, uh, <laughs> with his glove, his shoes, his hat, everything. Um, he couldn't get it out. He had to get, he couldn't get it out of the wall. <laughs> um, there was a, a playing a hangman with Roger Clemens on the bullet train in Japan. One time I made the all-star team and we were in Japan touring and I'm playing hangman with Roger Clemens on the, on the, uh, bullet train and I lost and everyone's like how'd you lose to Roger you know <laughs> right uh and then some other stuff you know there's a lot of things that happen in the locker room that have to stay there and and um uh, and some other stories that my wife was my I had one editor and she was the second she was like the moral compass editor oh, you know okay. she's like that's not gonna go in the book <laughs> no and so there's some ones that would have been fun to read, but I also want, didn't want to make it a tabloid book. I wanted to make it a narrative on uh, an inner game book. Right, which you did. I think you definitely achieved that. I don't want to go too much into the prologue because um, I, I think, it's, to me, it was a really cool way of starting hmm. the, the book. But you, know, you talk about the situation that you got yourself into, and it was... It was a tough situation, right? Mm -hmm. Probably a lot of pain involved. And you talk about when you're writing, you're talking about a lot of how you were breathing and mm -hmm. the way you were talking to yourself, a lot of mental skills training that was happening right there. So as a mental performance coach, how much are you of your work every day, whether if it's with mm -hmm. your wife and relationships, just anything in life? Mm -hmm. Are you constantly dropping into your work mm -hmm. or is it... Work is work, and then you kind of push the... That's a, that's, that's a wonderful question. Um, not as much as I would like, probably, mm. because I'm human and, you know, we're fucked up. You know, <laughs> humans think shitty things. Right. They, it's just there. You know, we, we have to learn how to change that, and sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. But 
It's part of being human. I think uh, through that regard, um, I think forgiveness is, you know, you may say something to somebody or do something that you regret, regret, and then, you know, you got to forgive yourself for that. I mean, life's too short. Right. But one thing, there's, there's one thing that my daughter, my wonderful daughter, Jenna, she's in grad school now. She's going to be a social worker and a really good one. She uh, loves taking, she did a study abroad in Cortona, Italy, a few years ago, and she took pictures of her feet from different, you know, in Rome or Florence, whatever, and she always says, be where your feet are. And, um, and I remember when I was playing, and I tell this to the, to the athletes now, is where am I, what am I doing? Because there were times when I was pitching when my mind was home, and there are times I'm in the movie theater with my wife and my mind is pitching. So my, go, my words to myself are, where am I, what am I doing? And then be there. And I, I do use that a lot. And I think it's really helped me to, it's reduced some anxiety. Um, it's, it takes away from, you know, the future of, you right. know, I've got to go on this long flight across the country to catch up with the team. And I hope my flight, I mean, that you start thinking that that creates a lot of anxiety, right. but it's like, I'm in the airport, you know, what can I do? Right. <laughs> so, you know, I remember one time it was a woman I met on a plane that, um, she was complaining about her bags didn't get on the flight or something. And she was really irate. And, um, I remember walking by, I told her, I go, you know, I'm really amazed that more bags aren't late. With all the luggage that people have on planes and all of the luggage that they handle, it's remarkable that they all get there. Right. right. So yours happened to be one of them. I'm like, lighten up a little bit, you right. know, what can you do? But anyway. It's all about reframing sometimes. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, perspective. <laughs> yeah. Perspective is huge. Big time. Yeah. Well, your very first chapter... Um, which I just just the basis of of my work and I'm wor- working with athletes. It's all starts with breath. Mm-hmm. You re- if you want to be mentally tough, you want to be gritty, resilient. You got to drop into your breath. And so your first chapter was titled "Breathe." Mm-hmm. So how did why did you pick that that title to open up your book? Yeah, I, I think that it it ties into the prologue and it ties into kind of the underlying tone of the whole book of relaxation and coming back to the moment. And um, that that's, that's all that we have in that immediate moment is to slow down and breathe, yeah. you know, on the mound when, when I'm, you know, I, I had, I was known for exceptional control and everyone, you know, said, Oh, it must've been great to have that control. And I was, I said, yeah, but when I got behind the hitter, which I did a lot, I would step off the mound and take a breath. And then I would focus on throwing a good low pitch. So mm-hmm. that self-coaching allowed me to do that. And I think that the players that are in the book uh, talk about breathing as well. And in particular, you know, the, the, the story of John Lester and, and relaxation to the degree of using imagery where he hadn't really used that before and breathing is a great prerequisite as we know right to using imagery so i think that that was a appropriate chapter to start with big time and you talked about john lester uh, uh, there's again did, did a real great job 
you know, outlining that experience that you had with John with imagery, how did you, how did you get him to buy in into mm. that technique? Well, uh, I, I think he was, I didn't get him to buy into it. He was finally accepting of it. Mm. I think that's, that's a difference, you know, because I don't think you convince people to do things that they don't want to do. They have to be ready to do them. And at that point, you know, I had known John for several years and worked with him in the minor leagues and tried to incorporate imagery as a skill. And he would always say he saw negative, you know, he saw guys getting hits and he couldn't relax. And so in this particular moment in the middle of the 2013 season, he was ready. And I'm glad I was there. And we, I talk about going in and just doing this spontaneous, spontaneous guided visualization with him which he got really relaxed and took him pitch by pitch to create those images for him. And he loved it. Yeah. And, uh, and then he pitched pretty well the next day. And then I went home, I made an audio program for him to listen to. That was a breathing and relaxation program. Um, and he had a great second half. Wow. Uh, and he still listens to it. That's awesome. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. You know, being in your role, what is it like when you're working with an athlete that's totally bought in? Oh, the feeling. It's the best, it right? Is. Isn't it? Yeah. Because there's not many. Right. You know, there's really not many, Grant. You know, I think a lot of people say that they want to do it, but they don't commit to it. And it's a commitment. Uh, it's And it's continuous. You know, I, I think the the players that I've had success with talk on a weekly basis and there's not it's not always a mental thing you know it's like there's really nothing to talk about I had a good game or you know I had a bad game but I know what I did wrong but you connect with them yeah and then it's a process of over time if the athlete looks back over time and says wow you know I really think that made a difference you know you're trying to move the needle a little bit at a time I had I had a client that was a ballerina in the Boston Ballet she had major knee surgery and uh, we worked together for a year and she's dancing again she's dancing great she thanks me for the time together we talked once a week for seven months and um and then at the end of that when she gets back on stage and she dances it's such a great feeling and she still sends me texts every now and then but she was committed to this it was a regular thing and that commitment is what it takes for athletes to to change and I tweeted this out the other day, change happens from the inside out. Athletes want change to happen from the outside in. They want the results to happen first. Mm. And when they don't get them, they don't look inside to say, what could I do different, better, or more of? They go to the fundamental, I need more batting practice. I need more of this. No, you don't. Right. What you need to do is be committed to working on something that will help your performance. Absolutely. Well, you know, when you talk about the, the buy-in process, there's so many times where I'm working with athletes, and you're, you can tell they're wavering. And you, you could tell them that, hey, Michael Jordan did it, Kobe Bryant, Tiger Woods. I mean, you can list all the greats. And sometimes it just doesn't resonate with them, but they really have – if they just allow themselves just to open up a little bit, just be a little bit vulnerable, mm-hmm. then they go, oh, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. Because there's such a wall to it, right? Yeah, for sure. And that, you know, that is always there. I mean, even with, you know, I work with the 
best baseball players in the world. Uh, I'm available as a resource to the best baseball players in the world, and I have been with two really good organizations. And I think that there's still that, there's a couple things that come into play that I think prohibit true engagement. One is the players don't under, really understand what mental skills coaching is. Yeah. I think that there's still a stigma with, you know, mentally weak and I don't need that help. And they don't understand that, you know, this is about human behavior. Right. This is human behavior in, in any vocation, in any aspect of life. Uh, and the people that master this are successful in their field, whatever that is. And yeah. it's available to everybody. I mean, this isn't <laughs> this isn't witchcraft. It's not right. You know, it's not psychoanalytic stuff. It's not talking about your childhood. It's not touchy feely. It's uh, it's about you know how you think. Do you think good thoughts? Do are they thoughts directed on helping you play better? If you have negative thoughts, okay, that's normal. Let's talk about how to change those so you can play better. Right. You know, goal setting to have something to strive for, adjusting those goals if you don't make them, using imagery as a skill to, you know, get you in a success mode mentally before you even go out there, whether you're speaking at a conference or in front of a you know, a bunch of students in school or a presentation for a company. I mean, it's, these are life skills. Big time. Not I'm, just mental skills. I mean, 100%. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. And I've, in my life, I've many things in the last year, you know, some things, unexpected things, maybe monumental, tough things happen. And if I haven't done this work, I would have made different decisions. But because I dropped in my breath, right? I had I just put myself in a better position, mm-hmm. and I always say breath, mind, body. Mm-hmm. You get that breath going, then the mind's more relaxed, make the best decision for your body to move. Yeah, you know that's, per- that's perfect. Yeah, you're right, and um, you know, and I t- I was just thinking about you know you shared with me some of the your own personal challenges uh, before we get on, and and the ability that you have now as a mental skills coach to kind of coach yourself. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the reason I went back and got my master's myself was, you know, I had a successful major league career. Um, but then when I get done, I didn't know who I was. Who am I? Exactly. I have no identity as a former athlete. And so in part, I went back to school to help me. Mm. And it took time. Right. Because, you know, I would still, you know, I should have played longer. Why didn't I play longer? If I'd only played longer... You know, I wish I had done that. Why didn't I do this? What who am I? What am I going to do? And I think that there was probably a, you know, if 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 my life since retirement for the first five years was a CD, there's lots of blank, uh, there's lots of dead air there because I didn't know what I was doing. Right. You know, I didn't know what I was doing, and so the eventually you keep coaching yourself over and over again and you do other things and you start to come out of your little funk, but it's through the use of, of try and try again with concepts and things that are proved through the through research, both clinically and in applied sports. Yeah. You know, and I forget who, who said this in the, in the book, but someone was applauding you for the most part for going back to school at the age that you were mm. and changing 44. your 44. Yeah. Yeah. And changing your direction of, of your occupation. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting cause I'm 44. I've been doing this work for the last three or four years. And I remember the, like 
when I was going out there and just delivering the message that this is what I'm going to be doing, I'm going back to school, that my wife's boss at the time, like we were at dinner and he goes, he's like, wow, are you, are you sure you want to do this? And I was like, yeah. Well, mm. I'm like, why not? And, you know, <laughs> right. well, that's in my DNA, you know? Right. And he's like, man, are you sh- I mean, you're 40 now? <laughs> and he goes, you know, that's, that's a tough move. And, and in my mind, I'm like, why is there so much fear behind? His, what's his perception? Of yeah. yeah. With, you know, the whole thing about fear. I'm like, well, yeah, I could be fearful or I can just trust the process. Can't, you or know? you know what? You're going to be 44 anyway, so it's coming. Right. So if you go to school and you're finished, you'll be 44 and you have your degree, or you could sit around and not do it, and you're still going to be 44. <laughs> right. So right. why not do it? Right. Yeah. So, yeah, just uh, I remember in the book when that, I forget who brought it up, I was like, ah, there's just people out there that... Well, it goes, it goes to, to toughness or it goes to achievement. I mean, you're a former athlete, right. you know, you're not stigmatized, but okay, so I'm 40. I want to go to school. I'll get it. Right. Why not? Right. Uh, the, you know, and I, I don't know the, you know, the gentleman to criticize them, obviously, but perception, some people would say, well, why do you want to get up at five o'clock and go work out in the gym to make $2,000 a month? Because I want to be a big leaguer. Right. That's why. Right. And some people wouldn't do it. So I think that's kind of, it's a great book. I'm sure you've heard Carol Dwyer wrote on mindset. Yeah. About open mindset and closed mindset. Yep. Growth mindset and fixed mindset. Yeah. That's perspective. It, big time. It's yeah. a great book. Yeah. Great, great book. book. Now, I do want to get into some of these stories, which are, they're awesome. And it, you could tell that you were vulnerable on some of them. And the one, you know, considering right now we're looking at the window, we're looking at the, <laughs> the San Francisco Giants uh, stadium right now where, you know, home of Barry Bonds, mm-hmm. you talked about pitching against him. Mm-hmm. And you were talking about, you were sharing with the reader kind of your inner dialogue of, mm-hmm. oh, my, here's the elite, you know, hitter of all hitters, right? Mm-hmm. And... As you were talking a lot about that process and going through that experience, you know, he ended up hitting a grand slam on you. Mm-hmm. Um, just to help other athletes out there, when you're going against someone that's really elite, did you feel like in that moment, did you feel like you were overthinking? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I, I tried to, you know, I tried to, uh, I tried to trick him. And it's funny, I just saw him at spring training recently, and uh, they were talking about, throwing a breaking ball to a lefty. I overheard him throw a conversation and, uh, and how stupid that is. And I said, uh, I said, yeah, unless you throw hard, you know, if you throw in the mid nineties and you throw a breaking ball down and into a lefty, you might get him. But you know, when you throw 85, that ain't going to work. Right. And so that's what I said. I was stupid because I tried to throw you a pitch. That was my fourth pitch. It really is not a, the the uh, percentages were very low that it was going to be successful and it proved true. He hit a three run or a grand slam. It's the only grand slam I ever gave up. Really? Yep. Yep. In San Diego at uh, Qualcomm Stadium. Yeah. 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 I still remember the pitch. I still remember. I should have just. And that's what. So when you face to your point, you know Tony Gwynn was a great hitter, and I talk about. If you threw the ball, I played with him for a year. If you threw the ball right down the middle to Tony Gwynn, you'd get him out. 
Really? Which goes against, because he was so good at recognizing if the ball was away, he knew what to do with it with his swing and if the ball was inside. But the ball right down the middle was kind of like, you know, and I don't know why that happened, but that's what happened. It was like, I'm throwing it right down the middle. Wow. And he'd ground out, and I'm sure he'd be <laughs> like, what the hell? But with Bonds, it, you know, Barry was intimidating. He's right on, kind of on close to the plate, and that's when guys started wearing the arm guards. And we used to get pissed at you know the hitters that are wearing that because part of the you know ability for pitchers to pitch inside and create a little fear on those great hitters, especially when you throw 85, right. gets taken away because you hit him in the elbow. It's like okay, he's got a pad on, you know. So if a hitter's up there with no protection and you throw in, right. he's a little bit more vulnerable. Yeah. But He's a great player, um, even before he became a super player. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, out of all the, the hitters that you faced, who who is either the most difficult or you deemed as the, the probably the best batter that you faced? Yeah, um, you know this is this tongue in cheek, but I answer that question when I was playing. I'd say my wife <laughs> because I didn't want to give the hitters any credit. Uh, she's a wicked wiffle ball player. But after the fact, I can say, you know, it really wasn't the power hitters that hit me well. Uh, Ryan Sandberg was a power hitter. Uh, But it was the guys that make Jay Bell, Mark Grace, you know, guys that made more contact. The big hitters, I knew they had weaknesses, and I could, with my command, I could exploit those a lot of the time. Right. But, um, you know, I did very well against Gary Sheffield and, you know, some of my numbers against the Hall of Famers are, are actually pretty good compared to, you know, the guys that didn't make the Hall of Fame, but that were still really good players. Right. You know, what's awesome, too, about the book is, you know, I grew up in the 80s and the 90s, and it's been a long time since I've revisited some memories of Tim Raines, mm. Ozzie Smith, mm. you know, Dave Winfield, and you were bringing all those back up, mm. and I'm like, oh, I remember it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I played Winfield... It was a teammate, you know, how's this my rookie year? I have um, Ken Griffey Sr. in left, Ricky Henderson in center, and Dave Winfield in right. Wow. You know, that's pretty cool. That's super cool. <laughs> and um, Winfield actually bought me my, gave me my first suit uh, my rookie year because I didn't own a suit. I bought this fake piece of crap suit at a store called Chess King back in Fort Lauderdale in 1986. And then we got to New York. He gave me one of his custom-made Italian fine (laughs) wool suits that I still have. You know, it only cost me about $200 to alter it, but it was still like a (laughs) $3,000 suit, so that worked out good. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, and Reigns is a great player. I mean, we think back at, you know, there'll be great players in every generation, but I played with and against a lot. And I think on that National League All-Star team that I was on, I think there were like 15 Hall of Famers on that team in wow. 1992. That was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there was, when you were talking about that experience, the people that you had to face. I'm mm. like, McGuire. Like, I'm mm. like, man. Joe if, Carter. Yes. Cal Ripken. Yes. Yeah. What yeah. if you had to do that in a real game? Like, if yeah. that was a part of a lineup? Yeah. yeah, well, the Yankees are kind of that way now. Yeah, with the, I know. You know, that's you got, true. You got Judge and then Stanton and then, you know, uh, a catcher. Uh, it's crazy. But, no, I mean, but there were some teams back then that had that type of lineup. You know, the Cincinnati Reds that won it in 1990. You know, they had Davis and uh, O'Neill and um, 
Barry Larkin, and you know there were some good teams, and the right. Pirates had Van Slyke and Benia, and right. you know, uh, so there are some great combinations that come up, and you know that makes the lineup tough, and that's what's going to actually that's what's going to make this Giants team a lot tougher this year is the length. When you get a Longoria and you get a, a McCutcheon, mm-hmm. and you you listen, you get Panic, Belt, McCutcheon, Posey. Longoria, yeah. Crawford. Yep. You know, you start stretching that lineup. That's pretty good. Real good. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, here's one story that I, I love. And it was interesting how you dealt with this, but uh, it's with Mark McGuire and mm-hmm. also with Willie McGee. <laughs> and and the way that, you know, as you wrote this in the book, you talked about how you struck them out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I play sports, there's something about, or when I did, I let go of who I was to become something else, which mm-hmm. was, you know, that was the fun part of playing sports. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really care if I embarrassed you or I didn't care what you thought or, th- you know, if mm-hmm. I hurt your feelings. But then after the game, you know, I'm go back to civilian grand and mm-hmm. I would think that we'd be all friends again, right? Mm-hmm. But the way you struck out Mark McGuire and also with McGee, you had this thought in your mind, like, I hope I'm not embarrassing them. Mm-hmm. And talk to me a little about that because... A lot of times athletes don't care if they're embarrassed and they just go out there. But but I don't know what it's like to be a professional baseball player and the relationships and the dynamics that exist mm-hmm. at that level. Yeah. Well, with with um, with McGuire, that was in 98. And um, I had painted a lithograph for the Boys and Girls Club of America. And it was, a, it was one of McGuire and one of Griffey. That's when they were doing the chasing the home run record. Yeah. And I asked him if he would sign the first 100 copies, you know, as a limited edition print. And he said yes. So it was during that time I just asked him this, and I'm out here throwing him these 47-mile-an-hour bloopers, you know. And um, so I just felt like I respected, I, I think it came more out of respect for who I was against, you know, the people that they were and the, their status in the game. He's mm-hmm. one of the, you know, great home run hitters. And, um, you know, if it had been Albert Bell, I probably, actually, I have an Albert Bell story that didn't make the book. I probably wouldn't have cared. Right. So, um, so anyway, I just, I send a note over to McGuire that said, hey, you know, I hope, hope you're okay with that. Um, I wasn't trying to embarrass you. I was just trying to have fun. And thanks for helping with the charity and he sent a note back over that said oh man I'm a sucker for those I would have swung at them all day you know so he was cool with it and I still when I see him now in our travels you know we'll talk about it a little bit but um and then with with Willie Willie's just such a great guy I mean he's he could be the pope I mean this guy is (laughs) such a nice human being and great teammate and but a fierce competitor. Fierce competitor. And what I didn't know until I talked to Ozzy. So I'd, we were with the Padres. They were playing in San Diego, and I said hi to the boys. And and uh, Ozzy said, man, Willie's mad at you. I'm like, for what? And he goes, because you showed him up. I'm like, what do you mean I showed him up? And he so I threw what happened was I threw my first pitch curveball at 47 miles an hour. And... and uh, and he took it for a strike, and I threw the next two pitches right down the middle at 85 miles an hour and struck him out on three pitches. And he walked back to the plate, and he was really upset. And uh, and Ozzy said, well, you embarrassed him. I said, I was just trying to pitch. I have to throw like that. 
So I go up to Willie and I say, hey, Willie, I, want to talk. I don't want to talk to you too because that was crap what you did. I don't want to talk to you. I go, what do you mean what I did? I just threw you a slow curveball. He goes, yeah, but the next two looked like they were 100 miles an hour. <laughs> so <laughs> so we ended up making up and um, it was good. But yeah, I think you got to respect your opponents, those that play the game with respect, you know, and um, I think my respect to others is kind of on how I thought they played the game. Right. Yeah. That's cool. It seemed like Mark McGuire was, he was, the way he dealt with it was, was uh, he was a sportsman. Oh, absolutely. And, and, yeah. and the pitch we're talking about, which, you know, we didn't talk about is the, the EFIS pitch. Right. And uh, which is funny because you're, I read more stuff outside of your book, and your son actually coined it as the Dominator. Yeah, the Dominator. Griffin, yeah. yeah. Griffin talked about it as the the Dominator because the the sign, and I asked him, you know, it was he was about six or seven then. This, you know, the curveball sign is a two, and when I wanted, which I threw at about 72 miles an hour, so it's like a real curveball. It has forward spin and goes down. Right. So the slow curveball, the catcher would wink, wiggle of fingers, um, which meant take something off of it, and that would be 47 to 54 or something. <laughs> uh, but it still came in like a slow. So I remember one day saying, Griff, I need a, I need a name for my pitch. And he calls, he, no one hits it, call it the Dominator. So I'm like, all right, it's the Dominator. There it you is. Know? So. <laughs> oh, I love it. Well, there's one other uh, story you talk about it. It was against the Houston Astros, mm. and you were pitching a perfect game, mm-hmm. and which is, I love this story because you talk about perfection, mm-hmm. and you actually talk about it other parts of the book. But in this since in this situation, you talked about as you were getting more perfect that that became the focus, mm-hmm. and how how can you know for any of the athletes that are listening to this right now. And what would you give as far as advice, as far as perfection and chasing perfection? Yeah, it's such a tough, tough thing. Um, you know, I think to strive for perfection is desirable and healthy, uh, but perfection will never be attained. Um, right. and, and those that obsess about being perfect really start digging their own hole and I think it erodes confidence, it erodes motivation, it takes away from enjoyment uh, of the game. So I think, you know, strive for perfection. I want to shoot 10 for 10 free throws. I want to I want to shoot par. You know, I want to make all my putts within three feet. Um, that's a great goal. And then you looking back and you say, okay, well, I was, dang, I was only seven for 10. You know, I stunk. No, you didn't. Right. You know, you're 70%, so adjust that. So I think, you know, even humans, we all fall into that perfection. Like, everything we do has to be perfect. You know, we have to act perfectly. We have to look perfectly. We have to do this perfectly. And um, and I think that letting go of that perfection is, perfectionism tendencies is healthy and mm-hmm. and reduces stress and uh, you know it's a whole type a thing you right. know, there's a lot of highly motivated people that are type a but i also know a lot of those people are very unhappy you know? exactly so, uh yeah let go of that um strive for it but understand that falling short of that's okay exactly uh, i when i'm working with athletes i tell them all the time you weren't 
put on this earth to be a perfect baseball player, right? Enjoy, like when you think of successful people, well, below that success line is a list of failures. And embrace those. Mm-hmm. I go, and I'm never going to tell you to be perfect because I don't want you, you know, chasing that, that mindset. The only thing I'm ever going to tell you to be perfect at is imagery. Mm-hmm. That's it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Because those images, you know, whatever you see is what's getting hardwired. Right. Yeah. You're right. So that, that's some, yeah. Uh, and I, and I also think, you know, cleaning the dishes so your wife is happy. There's some perfectionism there because <laughs> if you leave one little spot on one plate, it's like this big, the world's going to end. And like, come on, really? I clean all these, I get 15 cups in here that are clean, five plates, and their one bowl is not, ha- and you're mad at me? Right. <laughs> and you didn't even have to ask me to do it. <laughs> That's right. I right. did it willingly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Well, you know, <clears throat> something came up for me when I was reading your book. There was a game, and it might have been, I don't know if it was the, the Houston Astro game, but you retired 21 hitters in a row. Mm-hmm. And so when we, when we think about in sport, talk about flow and zone and peak Mm -hmm. performance so when you're retiring 21 hitters in a row and i just wanted to get in your your mind a little bit i would i would imagine that you were in some type of flow Mm -hmm. but can a pitcher retire 21 hitters and not be in flow i don't think so I, i i think well the thing with with um with that is in baseball there's eight guys behind me too Right. So if I make a bad pitch or do something where I get a little bit out of sync, they can bail you out. And then you feel like huh, things are okay. In that particular game, I remember that one of the first hitters of the game hit a ground ball to third. That third baseman made a great play on. And instead of a guy being on second, there's a, and no outs, there's, a, there's one out and no one on. That changes the whole perspective of the inning. But to your point, I think... Um, you know, flow does happen when it happens. You're not thinking about anything. You're kind of very much in the moment. You're in sync physically, mechanically, mentally. Um, and I think that that athletes get into trouble when they they can't find that state and they think they need to be in it to perform because they don't. Right. You don't have to feel good to play good. Exactly. You don't. There's like, and I think that's where the perfection is. If I I feel perfectly, I can play well. And then if I don't play well, oh my God, I felt so good. What did I do wrong? No, let go of all that stuff. <laughs> go play. Big time. Right. Go play. And so, so I think, um, you know, when you think of baseball records, Oral Hershiser's consecutive scoreless streak is just amazing. It's amazing. So by 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 your reference of being 21 in a row, he pitched know, 50-something consecutive scoreless innings, complete games. It's like five games. Wow. So was he in flow the whole time? And if he was, I don't think so because he pitched every five days over a course of six weeks, and he had achieved such great success of a scoreless streak. My guess is during that time... He had to. He was out of flow and found a way to come back in to compete, and then get back into flow again. Right, which is an art within itself. It's mental toughness. Mental toughness. Absolutely. It comes back to ninety percent mental. Yeah. What a concept. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny when you said um, you don't have to. You don't have to feel good to perform well. And when you think of, and I bring this up a lot, 
Michael Jordan, I forget what year, what year it was, but he had 104 temperature in a playoff game, scores 54 points. You know, Brett Favre, you know, super close to his dad. Dad passes away mm-hmm. Monday night football and breaks Monday night, you know, records. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he threw five or six touchdowns, but he just went off. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to feel good. You just got to trust your process. Yeah. You got to trust, you know, I, I think uh, you got to trust what you do. And that's why routines and preparation are so important. But if your routine gets broken, you still have to be able to play. You know, if, if your uniform is wet uh, or the bus is late and you didn't get a chance to do your shoot around or you didn't get a chance to take batting practice, doesn't mean you're going to have a bad day. Exactly. You know, and if you have a good batting practice, it doesn't mean you're going to have a good game. Right. You know, it just, it's batting practice, you know? Um, So I think, you know, I think that's one of the things where it comes down to, if I feel good, I play good. If I don't feel good, I'm not going to play good. And it's not about feel, it's about function. It's about what what do you want to do in doing it, which comes back to being in the moment. And as you know, Grant, it's all cyclical, you know, It, it all, it's a constant chain and there's no quick fix. I had a I had a pitcher send me a text the other day. He says, "Hey, if you come up any, with anything new for the big leaguers, let me know." I'm like, "New? There's nothing new with this. Right. What you need is to work on what you have." Yes. Crickets. Crickets. I didn't hear from him. <laughs> you know that that's actually a great point because I remember having a conversation with my mentor, Graham Betchart, and he was like, "This stuff isn't new. This like." We've been this stuff has been doing like this summarize centuries ago. They were focusing on visualization. Like this is this is not new. Mm-mm. We've been doing no. this for a long time. We've been doing it for a long time, and thankfully, the field of sports psychology is growing. And yes. um, you know, more and more teams are hiring sports psych professionals, mental skills coaches. Um, you know, you have this podcast. The field of 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 this uh, excuse me of performance has grown, and it's exciting, but. All of the stuff that we talk about isn't new. It's just people are aware of it, and now they have to apply it. Exactly. Big time. You talked a little bit about your your journey in the minor leagues. And I have friends that were in the minor leagues. It can be grueling. And I'm really big on the next man up mindset. And I can only imagine when you're going through the minor leagues, going through all just the traveling, it's tough. Especially when you're at AAA, where you're you're one call away. Mm-hmm. What kind of mindset? What kind of mental fortitude does a, an athlete have to deal with the minor leagues of getting moved down, moving up? Are you going to get pulled up? You know, next week. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, the the toughest the toughest level is AAA because you're so close, and the rosters of AAA teams are made up of players who have been there that aren't there, and of players who are prospects who are climbing up. And so that creates an interesting dynamic because there's a lot of players that aren't happy where their feet are. Right. I don't want to be in AAA. How come I can't get to the big leagues? Oh, Johnny, the stud pitcher's coming up. He's going to take my job. Uh, so there's a lot of bitching and moaning that goes around in AAA. You know, this guy's signed, you know, they, they signed this guy at the big league team. What about me? So you have to deal with that stuff. Um, I had a Jonathan Papelbon. I, I've known as a Red Sox minor leaguer for years, and he got, you know, became a really good closer. When he got moved up from Double A AA to Triple A, we had that conversation in the dugout. He said, "This place sucks." You know, Double A guys were playing cards together, and 
you know, you're not so close and you're unified and you play cards, you drink beer, you ride the buses, everyone's kind of like hanging on, having fun. Right. But when you get that one step closer and it's so important to get to that dream, the attitudes kind of change. But, you know, I, I was telling someone the other day, uh, just baseball's about controlling distractions and anxiety. Distractions are noise that, you know, other, what other people are doing, what, you know, what the roster looks like who they signed, you know, your statistics, you know, and the anxiety is I have to perform well every day to get to the big leagues. That's hard. You play 162 games in 183 days. That ain't easy. Right. And if you don't do your job, they find someone else because every year there's a thousand new baseball players come into the pool of players trying to get to the big leagues. Take your job, <laughs> you know, and so it's really hard. So if you can learn, again, it's mental toughness, how do I keep those thoughts, distractions, internal and external, away from performance? And how do I deal with the anxiety of performing well on a regular basis, not focused on results, but the process? Right. That's what we teach. Yep. That's what we teach, right? Exactly. The process and, and putting that cadence in, in front of you so you can access it mm -hmm. when you need it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you don't need it all the time. I said, we're like life insurance, you know, you need it when you need it. <laughs> and you don't, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, you can have a season where you didn't feel like you really had any mental challenges. You could have a week where you're devastated, you know, right. and you could talk to a player one time in the course of a season, but that one time might have released a little bit of his anxiety and helped him play better. Um, but you know, it's it's understanding the the minds, the skills of mental, understanding how to apply mental skills when you need them is what I try to do. If the guys are open to that, because you're going to need it right. at some point. Absolutely, every athlete is big time. Every no matter at the level, you know, Michael Jordan missed what ten thousand shots. Yeah, you know, Babe Ruth struck out fifteen thousand times. You know, that's probably a little high, but he's, <laughs> right. you know, right? Failure's evident it or is. imminent. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I have I have about three more questions before we close up here. And you know, John Lester talks a little bit about the the baseball culture um, in your book about how it's taking baseball so long to kind of buy in and accept mental performance or mental skills training. And when you think about it, which is interesting, because when you look at John Smoltz and Jack Lowen back in, I mean. What Jack did for, for John was incredible, how he changed him around in a season. Mm -hmm. there, there, there's, there's proof, right? Mm -hmm. you, you look at Michael Jordan and Kobe, they work with George Mumford. Mm -hmm. I mean, elite. You have Russell Wilson, who works with Bob Moad. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, when you look at these elite players that are actually accessing people like us, it works. It does. But it's still, there's still a barrier on working with us or yeah. accepting it. Where do you think Major League Baseball is right now with with this type of training? I think it's growing, you know. And, and again, I, I still think that um, I think the team's reluctance to it in years past were multiple. One, I think they they couldn't. It's not a tangible thing; you can't quantify it. Right. You know, so it's like, well, if I can hire a hitting coach because he can help him hit and he can help him pitch, but if I hire a mental coach, what the hell is he going to do? You know, and then and the other one is the teams have the resources to do that. It's, you know, it's you have to hire trained people. There's, you know, flights and hotels and meal money. There's an expense that goes with it. Um, 
but I think right now there's about 20 when I started in 04 the Red Sox there's probably a handful of teams had mental skills and now I think there's somewhat over 20 that wow. have a program of mental skills so the field has really grown and uh, it's going to continue to grow and I get asked all the time you know how do I get into baseball so that's a good thing right um but it's uh, so I think it's just kind of culturally it's finally taken a hold and I think it's I think just like analytics has in baseball, that's just boomed. And I think that sports psychology, mental skills coaching is going to also. Absolutely. 100%. Two people you talked about that were really influential in either as a player or as a mental performance coach. Um, H.A. Dorfman, how important was he to baseball? Yeah, Harvey, yeah. He was great. You know, it's so many of the things we've talked about today, Grant. I, I can refer to Harvey when he talked about perfectionism. I remember he asked the player, he goes, do you know anyone that's perfect? And the player said no. And he goes, well, why the hell are you trying to be the first one? You know? And then he would say, you want to be perfect? Go home in your bathtub, put in three inches of water, and if you step in and your feet don't hit the tub, then you're perfect. <laughs> you know? And so Harvey, you know, he wrote three books. He was a mentor to me and so many other people. He pioneered the work with players, Greg Maddox, the late Roy Holiday. Uh, Halliday, um, you know, uh, tons of others, and uh, he really bl helped blaze the trail. And he's the one he told me uh, when I said I was going to go back to graduate school. He said, "Your experience is going to be a blessing and a curse." And I'm like, "What? How could it be a curse?" Right. And and I didn't know what he meant for years. And then it was because there are times where I have to remember that I'm a mental skills coach and not a baseball player that I can't, my default is to go to being, to my experiences of being a player when I need to look at it another way. And that's my biggest challenge professionally is to remember, you know, okay, that's the player, Bob. What about the other Bob? Right. You know? So he's, he's a tremendous man and we all miss him. Oh, I bet. I mean, I read all his books. It's awesome. Yeah. But you make a great point, uh, especially in, in our role is, you know, I played football for 13 years. When I'm working with either athletes or football players, it took me a while um, it to stay in my role because mm -hmm. I have so much to pull from in my experiences. And I've, you know, I've already seen this happen before. I can tell you, like, how to work. Right. You know? And then I'm like, nope. I know. It's so hard. It is. It? It's so hard because, you know, because there's other people that can share their experiences of ball players, But, you know, what I can provide should be another perspective what we should what, as mental skills coaches we should pr provide another perspective based on our experiences that no one else can provide you know right. none of the other coaches on teams can provide right and you know as i say that i'm thinking shit i gotta remember that more <laughs> <laughs> you talk about joe tory you said something he was like a mental performance coach how Tell me a little bit about that statement and how uh, influential was he for you as a player? Yeah, I think I touched on it earlier. You know, he was just kind, understanding, great listener, mm. which is part of our job to be a good listener. Big time. Um, and like I said, he, he pulled me in at a time in which uh, my prior managers, because I didn't throw hard, I don't think ever really believed that I could be successful at the big league level, you know, I, all, I also heard, you know, he's, he's not tough enough. He doesn't throw hard enough. He's not mean enough. He's too nice. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
Joe Torre said, you can win, and I believe in you. So he gave me permission to be successful that I hadn't gotten before, and I won 33 games over a two-year period with Joe, and actually 45 in three years. So wow, it made a big difference for me. That's awesome. That's great. Yeah. One last question here. Now, me being a quarterback, I've, I've heard this throughout my whole career, and even with coaching teams, uh, quarterbacks, they, everyone's, everyone says that the position of quarterback is the hardest position in sports. Do you think that's true, or what about the role of a pitcher? Do you think, because I, I never even thought about this, but my brother started bringing up all these reasons why that a pitcher is equally is just really? tough. I'd like to hear him because I think it's, I don't know how you stand in a pocket with guys wanting to tear your head off that you can't even <laughs> see over, understanding where the patterns are, what the checkdowns are, and where to throw it. Right. Remarkable. Right. The touch and feel of quarterbacks, I'm amazed that, you know, I don't know. I just feel like that would be tougher for me. I'd like to hear your brother's rationale. Yeah. He actually put it on social media, so I'll, I'll definitely send it to you. Yeah. yeah. No kidding. I'd yeah. like to see that because I'll take it. If I'm <laughs> Pitchers are certainly a tougher, right. harder job than you quarterbacks. <laughs> right. <laughs> you guys get to wear helmets. We have no helmet. We got a ball coming back at us at 150 miles an hour. Right. You got people blocking your stuff. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see that. Yeah. yeah. I'll definitely send it to you. Well, Bob, this has been, um, man, this has been great, man. I, to, just to hear your story, also just getting your mind a little bit about the book and, uh, and just having this experience for me, it's just been a treat, That's man. That's awesome. I well, really thank you. It's it. been great to, great to talk to another person in the field that was an athlete that can walk the talk, and uh, I'm thrilled to have been part of a... Uh, the 90% Mental Podcast. Yeah, here it is, right? <laughs> I appreciate great. it. Thank you. Awesome.